for your leadership this morning. Well, as we continue to make our way through the gospel according to John, we come to the end of chapter 12 this morning. Let's turn there in our Bibles, John chapter 12. We've entered the final week of Jesus' earthly life. By Friday, he will be pinned to a cross with nails driven through his hands and his feet. Death by crucifixion. So here in John chapter 12, the end was clearly in view for Jesus. He knew the end was coming. And with the end clearly in view, we discovered that Jesus in verses 23 to 28 defined reality. Last week we focused on verses 28 to 36 and discovered him pointing the way forward. Again, with the end clearly in view. First by clarifying heaven's commitment and then by commissioning the confused crowd. And after that, he departed. Notice verse 36. He went away and hid himself from them. And that marked the end of Jesus' public ministry. From this point forward, he would begin to focus on preparing his closest followers for his departure, for his death. But notice what he said just prior to his departure in verses 35 and 36. So Jesus said to them, For a little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have light, so that darkness will not overtake you. While you have light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light. Do you hear that sense of urgency in Jesus' message? And yet, in spite of that sense of urgency, the Apostle John submits his progress report in verse 37. Notice, but though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. How in the world is that possible? How do you explain that kind of persistent unbelief? The Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, offers an explanation in verses 37 through to the end of the chapter. And that's what we want to consider this morning. With John's help, we will acknowledge the dilemma of unbelief by considering first the problem, then the solution, and then some implications. If you're able, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading from God's Word this morning. And we'll be reading from chapter 12 through to the end of the chapter. Chapter 12, beginning at verse 36. While you have light, believe in the light so that you may become the sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. Verse 37, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, 
which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and, and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees that were not confessing him, for fear they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as a light into the world, so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Father, you love the world so much that you gave your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, life both now and forever. What a gift. Thank you for this demonstration of your love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Help us to respond appropriately to this demonstration of your love toward each one of us. Open our eyes to see spiritual realities. Even as we study this portion of the Apostle John's account of the life and ministry of Jesus this morning, may your spirit enlighten our minds and empower us with with courage and strength to not only hear and understand, but but to live in obedience to this inspired revelation, living lives that please you, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to you, which is our spiritual service of worship. Glorify your name, Lord, in our lives, both as individually and collectively. As, local, as a localized expression of the body of Christ. May our transformation from the inside out continue even this morning. And now, Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock 
and our Redeemer. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Unbelief is a dilemma to be acknowledged. We can't ignore it. We can't stick our heads in the sand and pretend pretend that it doesn't exist. Neither can we deny it. We can't make a wish and hope that it'll all go away. Unbelief is an inescapable reality of life. And folks, as I understand the scriptures, those who are choosing not to believe will always be in the majority. Until the end of the age, those who choose to believe will be a significant minority. It won't even be close. Believers will always be outnumbered. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, put it this way. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad. And its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Unbelief is a dilemma to be acknowledged. Acknowledging the dilemma of unbelief begins by acknowledging the problem. They were not believing in him. That's a problem. On April 13, 1970, Apollo 13 mission to the moon was rocked by an onboard explosion. The command module went completely dark. They were approximately 200,000 miles from Earth, from home. An astronaut radioed mission control, Houston, we have a problem. The phrase became a cultural touchstone. Sportscasters say it. Politicians say it. Books, movies, plays, music, and yes, even sermons refer to this phrase. It's shorthand for saying something has gone terribly awry. Except the quote is wrong. It was never said. Up in space that night, after the explosion rocked Apollo 13, this was the actual dialogue that took place between the astronauts and mission control in Houston. Jack Swigert said, okay, Houston, We've had a problem. Mission Control responded, This is Houston. Say again. Lovell, the other astronaut, responded, "Uh, Houston, we've had a problem. But Houston, we have a problem, is so much more exciting and more dramatic, especially when you're watching the movie Apollo 13. And admittedly, using the active verb rather than the passive is better when we're speaking about the problem that we're looking at this morning. The dilemma of unbelief. 
Houston, we have a problem. Look at verse 37 again. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Unbelief prevailed in spite of all the evidence. It has been well documented documented in John's gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus performed numerous miracle signs over the last two and a half years of his ministry. Turning water into wine. Actually, the best wine. Feeding 20,000 people with, small, with five small barley loaves and two fish. Or maybe raising someone from the dead who's been in the tomb for four days. And that's only three of the seven that John refers to in his gospel account. But at the end of the book, he reports many other signs Jesus also performed, which are not written in this book. In fact, Jesus was doing miracles after miracle after miracle. And granted, some did believe in his name. But for the most part, the nation of Israel did not. So much so that when the Apostle John sat down to write this account of the life and ministry of Jesus, he opened with these remarks. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. As for the Jewish religious leaders, well, these signs seem to only provoke greater hate and a more determined will to destroy this young rabbi, to kill him. I've said it before, but let me say it again. For those demanding more proof in order to believe, enough will never be enough. You will never be able to, you and I will never be able to provide enough proof for someone to be persuaded to make the move from unbelief to belief. But that doesn't mean that we stop providing evidence. In fact, Jesus, in his prayer in John chapter 17, let's turn there for a moment. John chapter 17 in your Bibles. Notice verse 21. If you've not highlighted this yet, or underlined it, I'd suggest that you do it now. We've identified this oneness in John chapter 17 that he prays about as part of God's vision for the Rock Community Church. Look at it. That they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That's what God envisions us becoming as a localized expression of the body of Christ. That we may be one, may all be one. One in our love for one another, love in our submission 
or one in our submission to the authority of God's word, the scriptures, and one in our commitment to making disciples of Jesus Christ. From God's perspective, that is the kind of evidence that is extremely helpful so that, notice, the, word, the world may believe that you sent me. But even then, each individual makes the choice for themselves. To believe or not to believe. And we will be held for, responsible for that choice. The choice that we make. But these Jews, they had chose not to believe. Unbelief prevailed in spite of all the evidence that Jesus had pre presented. And unbelief was predicted by the prophet Isaiah in verses 38 to 41. But let's talk about the prophet Isaiah for a moment. He lived about 700 years before Jesus was even born. Israel, in Isaiah's day, was divided into two kingdoms. Ten of the tribes formed the northern kingdom. Two tribes formed the southern kingdom, often referred to in scripture as Judah. Isaiah lived in Jerusalem, in the southern kingdom, in Judah. And he delivered messages that he received from God to the southern kingdom, to Judy. Judy. The Old Testament book that bears his name as its title is a compilation of those messages that he had delivered to Judah. Part 1 in chapters 1 through 39 reveals God's righteousness, his holiness, his justice, and emphasizes Israel's need for restoration, to return to God. That's the first 39 chapters of Isaiah. The last half, or the second part, in Isaiah 44, or 40 to 60, 66, it presents God's glory, God's compassion, God's grace. And it predicts that, that God's future provision will bring... A, Israel back to himself through an individual called the servant of the Lord. So as we approach the book of Isaiah, it begins with that bad news and then ends with a restored Israel sometime in the future. Here in John chapter 12, the apostle references Isaiah to explain the unbelief that they are now spirit experiencing amongst Israel at the end of Jesus' life. Why then? When Jesus came to his own, did he reject him? Did they reject him? After two and a half years of claiming to be God, teaching in profound ways, teaching in a way that they had never heard before, and then finally, with a pl plethora of miraculous signs. They still were not believing him. And if the Jews did not accept or recognize their own Messiah, 
Maybe, maybe we've got it wrong. The first quote John referenced is taken from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah chapter 53 goes on to present a description of that one who would be sent by God to make Israel's restoration possible. And Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension meets all of the description, the details of the description that are laid out here in Isaiah 55. 700 years prior to Jesus' birth, Isaiah predicted that Israel would not believe in him. They would deny his words and dismiss his works. This was all part of God's plan for Israel on the way to becoming restored to him. This didn't catch God by surprise. The second quote find, found in verse 40 here in John 12, chapter 12 is taken from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, and informs us that their, their unbelief is not just tied to a resolute determination to, to reject God's provision. In fact, it was God's judicial blindness. He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. You may want to underline in your Bibles a couple of phrases. Verse 37. Mine reads, they were not believing him. In verse 37, right? The NIV offers a slightly different translation. They would not believe him. And then in verse 39, underline, they could not believe him. Isn't that interesting? From would not to could not. Because as Isaiah explains it, God had blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts. After years and years, decades and decades, genera generation after generation of willful unbelief expressed in disobedience and rebellion, the Jews of Isaiah's day and the Jews of D Jesus' day could not believe in Jesus. God's judgment had left them with blinded eyes and hardened hearts. Belief, unbelief prevailed in spite of all the evidence. And unbelief was predicted by the prophet Isaiah some 700 years before it took place here. Unbelief was also preserved by their fear of man. Look at verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. 
I'm not sure what kind of belief this is. These religious leaders, religious, well, remember back in John chapter 2, when Jesus attended that first Passover celebration in the city of Jerusalem? Chapter 2, and beginning at verse 23. Because of the miraculous signs Jesus did in Jerusalem at the Passover celebration, many began to trust in him. But Jesus didn't trust in them because he knew about all people. No one needed to tell him about human nature. He knew what was in each person's heart. Were they genuine believers, these Jewish religious leaders? It's hard to know. But what we do know is that they were unwilling to make any kind of public expression of their belief in Jesus. First of all, they did not want to lose their position in the synagogue. They didn't want to be put out. And that was a big deal for them. Because being put out of the synagogue would have had social, spiritual, economic, emotional, and even physical repercussions. Back in John chapter 9, we saw the parents of a man who had been born blind, actually distancing themselves from their very own son. Because Jesus had given him new eyes. They were being examined by the the Pharisees, the rulers of Judaism. We know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. The second reason that these Jewish leaders would not confess Jesus was because they valued the approval of men rather than the approval of God. That one may not be so hard for you and I to somehow imagine. We all like the approval and affirmation of other people, don't we? Belief that is not willing to confess him is at best a, a preemie or undeveloped faith. At worst, it could be a disguise for unbelief. Jesus said, therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Either way, these religious leaders, rulers of the Jews, were either promoting or at least preserving unbelief in themselves and those around them. That's what an unconfessed, private, personal, keep it to myself kind of faith does. In that sense, unbelief was preserved by their fear of man. 
Unbelief prevailed in spite of all the evidence. Unbelief was predicted by the prophet Isaiah. And unbelief was, pre was preserved by their fear of man. Unbelief is a dilemma to be acknowledged. But let's move on. The solution. He who believes in me. Verses 44 to 50 read like a summary statement to me. It seems that the, that the Apostle John is kind of presenting a panoramic view of Jesus' teaching, hitting on all the high points. There is absolutely nothing new introduced in these verses. We've heard it all before. But when and where he said it, we're not told. This appears like a Reader's Digest version of the life of Christ, or maybe a, a Cole's Notes, and I know I'm dating myself. I don't, I don't know what they use nowadays with the internet, but let me try and summarize John's summary of Jesus' life by making just five st or four statements of fact about Jesus drawn from these passages. Look at verse 44 and 45. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. Jesus is the perfect manifestation of God's person. Let me read a couple of other references, that biblical references, that support that very premise. How about one keeping with the Kind of the, the season that we're in. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, was the message delivered by the angel to Joseph. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She'll give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What about the Apostle John's introduction to this book in John chapter 1? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then drop down to verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. But the clincher for me is found in Hebrews chapter 1, and verse 3. Speaking of Jesus, and he is the radiance of his glory, and the exact representation of his nature, God's nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purifications of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty of high. Jesus is the perfect representation of God. Verse 46. I have come as the light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. Turn back to the beginning of John, John chapter 1. And look at verse 4. This is John's testimony about Jesus. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John, John the Baptist. 
He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Jesus is that light that overcomes the darkness. Verse 48, or 47 and 48. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He rejects me and does not receive my sayings as one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. How would you summarize that in a sentence? And what's he referring to about Jesus? Well, you've got the outline in front of you. You just have to fill in one word. God, or Jesus, is God's final offer. This is it, folks. He's the one. He did not come to judge the world, not this time, but if they do not choose to keep his words, they reject him and his message, Jesus' words will judge them. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. For unbelievers, that day of judgment will be an exceptionally difficult day. On the other hand, John chapter 5, verse 24, offers something very different for those who believe. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment. Does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. Jesus is God's final offer. Look finally at verses 49 and 50. For I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Jesus is a reliable spokesperson for God. Not that, not only was he the perfect manifestation of God, God's person, he was the perfect representative because he only spoke what God wanted him to speak. The last sentence in the NIV reads, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. God, or Jesus, is God's reliable spokesperson. Unbelief is a dilemma to be acknowledged. 
We've talked about the problem, and we've talked about the solution. Jesus is the perfect manifestation of God's person. Jesus is the light that overcomes the darkness, the darkness of this world. Jesus is God's final offer, and Jesus is God's reliable spokesperson. John chapter 1, verse 12. Right at the beginning of the book, but as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. This seems like a really good time to hit the pause button and to reflect on the things that we've heard so far. You may want to think about the problem. Reflect on where you are on that belief unbelief continuum. Have you come to that point in your life where you have made a conscious choice to start trusting Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? And if not, why not? You can make that choice. To believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, right now, in the quietness of your own heart. Admit that you are a sinner. Then hate, begin to hate that sin and want nothing to do with it. Repent. Admit, repent, thank Jesus Christ for, for dying for your sin and for mine. The righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us safely home to God. And then ask God to help you to begin living life in a way that will please him. And then come to the table. Participate at the Lord's Supper. Jesus invites all those who are trusting him alone for their salvation to come and participate. And maybe you've made that choice, that you're choosing to trust Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. You believe that he was who he claimed to be, did what the scriptures say he did, and will do what he promised he will do. You're trusting in Jesus. Turn with me in your Bibles to Paul's explanation of the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. If that describes you, look at verse 28. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat the bread and drink of the cup. Examine yourself to ensure that you're participating in a worthy manner. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it reads, 
Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Examine your relationships with those in this community of faith, fellow believers. And certainly ask God to help you examine your, your relationship with him as we come to this important celebration. As we prepare to participate at the Lord's Supper, this is also a good time to reflect on the one who, who gave his life so that he could provide a solution to the problem that we face. Reflect on Jesus as the perfect manifestation of God's person. Jesus as the light that overcomes the darkness. Jesus as God's final offer. And Jesus as God's reliable spokesperson. At this time, I'd like to invite those who are going to be serving this morning to join us here at the front pew. We'll take a couple of minutes for quiet reflection. After that, following that time of reflection, I'll read some verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and then lead us in prayer. We'll distribute the elements and I'd ask that you'd hold them, the bread and the cup, until everyone's been served. And then I'll invite us to eat and drink together. Following the Lord's Supper, I'd like to come back and just share some quickly some implications of the passage of scripture that we looked at this morning. But for now, let's just take a moment and reflect. Reflect on your relationship with, with God, your relationship with others, and certainly um, reflect on your own salvation experience. First Corinthians chapter 11, beginning at verse 23, we read, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your demonstration of love toward us. The bread reminds us of, of Jesus' incarnation. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, 
be held on to for dear life, but willingly took on the form of a man, the perfect manifestation of your person. The juice reminds of his, of a, of his sacrifice, the shedding of blood that purchased our forgiveness, so that we have been given an opportunity to respond appropriately to the solution to our problem. Thank you for your forgiveness and the relationships we can enjoy as a result with you and with one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. love would have held him there. It 
Thank you, Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So, unbelief is a dilemma to be acknowledged. And acknowledging a problem is the first step to solving it. Let's look at some implications. And he went away and hid himself from them. I'm just going to run through these implications to help you fill in the blank because I hate you to go home with blank, empty blanks on your outline. But let me uh, run through these. We won't take a lot of time. You have the passages of Scripture there to look up and your own time to support the points. Point number one, the opportunity to believe is time-sensitive. You don't have forever to make this, this critical decision. Like some people have an opportunity to get their life together. I was able to sit with Marvin for probably on, on different occasions through three weeks of times when, when Wayne and I were continually reminding him, this is, a gr this is a gift from God. You can get your life prepared. Not just with will and all that kind of stuff, but get prepared spiritually. So opportunity to believe is time sensitive. Individuals will be held responsible for their choices. Romans chapter 14, verse 12. Sorry, I can't resist. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. We will be held responsible. Unbelief is inherently progressive. And this I found really fascinating as I studied this passage of Scripture. They moved from they would not believe to they could not believe. And we need to pay attention to that. If you want to look at a fascinating passage of Scripture, turn to Romans chapter 1. 
people who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and God gives them up. That's judgment. And he gives them up three times, and they continue to cycle downward into more depravity, expressions of depravity. Just, it gets sicker and sicker as they move away from God. We will drift away from him. Unbelief is inherently progressive. Seeking the approval of men rather than the approval of God suppresses belief. Persist with celebrating, demonstrating, and proclaiming the gospel regardless of results. And let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminders this morning of your love for for each one of us and the initiatives you have taken to restore our broken relationship with you. Both, both from the Apostle, Paul, Apostle John's account of the life and ministry of Jesus and from our participation in the Lord's Supper. May what we have heard and participated in this morning, as well as our interactions with one another, spur us on to love and good works and to work out our salvation as you work in us. May the Spirit use these kinds of inputs and influences in each of our lives as catalysts in the process of our continuing transformation from the inside out so that we can become more and more like Jesus. It is in the name of Jesus that we ask these things for your glory. Amen.